Section 8 of History of the Jews in Russia and Poland, Volume 2, From the Death of Alexander I Until the Death of Alexander III, 1825-1894, by Shimon Dubunov, translated by Israel Friedland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by S.S. Kim. Manikt Baisho, Portugal. Chapter 15. The Jews in the Kingdom of Poland. Part 2. 3. Assimilationist tendencies among the Jews of Poland. In the beginning of the third decade of the 19th century, the noise caused by the Jewish question had begun to subside both in Polish political circles and in Polish literature. Instead, the agitation within the Jewish ranks became more vigorous. That group of Jews already assimilated or thirsting for assimilation, which on an earlier occasion during the existence of the Varsovian Dutch had segregated itself from the rest of Jewry, assuming the labor of Old Testament believers, occupied a very influential position within the Jewish community of the Polish capital. It was made up of wealthy bankers and merchants and boasted of a few men with a European education. The members of this group were hankering after German borders and were anxious to renounce the national separatism of the Jews, which was a standing rebuke in the mouth of their enemies. To these Old Testament believers, the abolition of the Kahal and the limitation of communal self-government to the narrow range of synagogue interests appeared the surest remedy against anti-Semitism. Behind the abrogation of the communal autonomy, they saw the smiling vision of a Jewish school reform leading to the Polonization of Jewish education while in the far-off distance they could discern the promised land of equal citizenship. The efforts of the Jewish reformers of Warsaw were now systematically directed toward this goal. In 1820, there appeared an anonymous pamphlet under the title The Petition or Self-Defense of the Members of the Old Testament Persuasion in the Kingdom of Poland. The main purpose of this publication is to show that the root of the evil lies in the Kahal organization, in the elders, rabbis and burial societies who expend enormous sums of taxation money without any control, i.e. without the control of the Polish municipality, who oppress the people by their harems, excommunication, and altogether abuse their power. It is therefore necessary to abolish this power of the cars and transfer it to the Polish municipalities or even police authorities. Only then will order be established in the Jewish communities and the Jews will be transformed into useful citizens. The government spheres of Poland were greatly pleased by these utterances of the Old Testament believers of Warsaw. They had long contemplated the curtailment of the autonomy of the cars, and now the very Jews clamored for it. In consequence, there appeared in 1821 a series of edicts by the viceroy and various rescripts by the Commission of Public Instruction and Religious Denominations, 
resulting in the demolition of the ancient communal scheme in which certain forms of self-government but by no means its underlying fundamental principles had become obsolete. These measures were sanctioned by an imperial ukase dated December 20, 1821, decreeing the abolition of the cars and their substitution by congregational boards whose scope of activity was strictly limited to religious matters while all civil and fiscal affairs were placed under the jurisdiction of the local Polish administration. The congregational board were to consist of the rabbi, his assistant or substitute, and three trustees or supervisors. At first, the majority of Jewish communities in Poland were indignant at this curtailment of their autonomy and adopted a hostile attitude towards the new communal organization. The supervisors elected on the congregational board often refused to serve, and the authorities were compelled to appoint them. But in the course of time, the communities became reconciled to the new scheme of congregations or gminas, whose range of activity was gradually widened. In 1830, the suffrage of the Polish Jews within the Jewish communities was restricted by a new law to persons possessed of a certain amount of property. The result was particularly noticeable in Warsaw, where the new state of things helped to strengthen the influence of the group of the Old Testament believers and enable them to gain control of the affairs of the metropolitan community. The leaders of Warsaw Jewry managed soon to establish intimate relations with the Polish government and cooperated with it in bringing about the cultural reforms of the Jews of Poland. In 1825, the Polish government appointed a special body to deal with Jewish affairs. It was called Committee of Old Testament Believers, though composed in the main of Polish officials. It was supplemented by an advisory council consisting of five public-spirited Jews and their alternates. Among the members of the committee, which included several prominent Jewish merchants of Warsaw, such as Jacob Bergson, M. Kapski, Solomon Posner, T. Teplitz, was also the well-known mathematician Abraham Stern, one of the few cultured Jews of that period who remained the steadfast upholder of Jewish tradition. The Committee of Old Testament Believers embarked upon the huge task of civilizing the Jews of Poland and purging the Jewish religion of its superstitious excrescences. The first step taken by the committee was the establishment of a rabbinical seminary in Warsaw, for the training of modernized rabbis, teachers, and communal workers. The program of the school was arranged with a view to the Polonization of its pupils. The language of instruction was Polish, and the teachers of many secular subjects were Christians. No wonder, then, when the seminary was opened in 1826, Stern refused to accept the post of director which had been offered to him, and yielded his place to Anton Eisenbaum, 
a radical assimilator. The tendency of the school may be gauged from the fact that the Department of Hebrew and Bible was entrusted to Abraham Buchner, who had gained notoriety by a German pamphlet entitled The Nichtigkeit des Talmud, The Worthlessness of the Talmud. Characteristically enough, Buchner had been recommended by the ferocious Jew baiter Abbe Schiarini, a member of the Committee of Old Testament Believers, which one might almost suspect was charged with the supervision of Jewish education for no other reason than that to spite the Jews. Shirini was professor of Oriental languages at the University of Warsaw. As such, he considered himself an expert in Hebrew literature and cherished the plan of translating the Talmud into French to unveil the secrets of Judaism before the Christian world. In 1828, Shirini suggested to the Committee of Old Testament Believers to arrange a course in Hebrew archaeology at the Warsaw University for the purpose of acquainting Christian students with rabbinical literature and thus equipping prospective Polish officials with the knowledge of things Jewish. The plan having been approved by the government, Shirini began to deliver a course of lectures on Judaism. The fruit of these lectures were a French publication issued in 1829 under the title Théorie du Judaism. It was an ignorant libel upon the Talmud and Rabbinism, a worthy counterpart of Eisenmenger's Judaism Exposed. Shirini did not even shrink from repeating the hideous lie about the use of Christian blood by the Jews. He was taken to task by Jacob Tugendhold in Warsaw and by Jost and Zunz in Germany. Yet the evil seed had sunk into the soil. Polish society, which had long harbored unfriendly sentiments against the Jews, became more and more permeated with anti-Semitic bias, and this bias found tangible expression during the insurrection of 1830 to 1831. 4. The Jews and the Polish insurrection of 1831 When, under the effect of the July Revolution in Paris, the November insurrection of 1830 broke out in Warsaw, it put on its mettle that section of Polish jury who hoped to improve the Jewish lot by their patriotic ardor. In the month of December, one of the Old Testament delivers, Stanislav Hernisch, addressed himself to the Polish dictator Klopitsky in the name of a group of Jewish youth, assuring him of their eagerness to form a special detachment of volunteers to help in the common task of liberating their fatherland. The dictator replied that, inasmuch as the Jews had no civil rights, they could not be permitted to serve in the army. The minister of war, Moravsky, delivered himself on this occasion of the following characteristic utterance. We cannot allow that Jewish blood should mingle with the noble blood of the Poles. What will Europe say when she learns that in fighting for our liberty, we have not been able to get along without Jewish help. The insulting refusal did not cool the ardor of the Jewish patriots. 
Joseph Berkovich, son of Berek Yoselovich, who had laid down his life for Polish cause, decided to repeat his father's experiment and issued a proclamation to the Jews, calling upon them to join the ranks of the fighters for Polish independence. The national government in Warsaw could not resist this patriotic pressure. It addressed itself to the Congregational Board of Warsaw, inquiring about the attitude of the Jewish community towards the projected formation of a separate regiment of Jewish volunteers. The board replied that the community had already given proofs of its patriotism by contributing 40,000 gulden towards the revolutionary funds and by collecting further contributions toward the equipment of volunteers. The formation of a special Jewish regiment the board did not consider advisable, inasmuch as such action was not in keeping with the task of uniting all citizens in the defense of the fatherland. Instead, the board favored the distribution of Jewish volunteers over the whole army. From now on, the Jews were admitted to military service, but more into the militia than into the regular army. The commander of National Guard in Warsaw, Anton Ostrovsky, one of the few rebel leaders who were not swayed by the anti-Semitic prejudices of the Polish nobility, admitted into his militia many Jewish volunteers on condition that they shave off their beards. Owing to the religious scruples of many Jewish soldiers, the latter condition had to be abandoned and the special bearded detachment of the Metropolitan Guard was formed, comprising 850 Jews. The Jewish militia acquitted itself nobly of its duty in the grave task of protecting the city of Warsaw against the onrush of the Russian troops. The sons of wealthy families fought shoulder to shoulder with children of the proletariat. The sight of these stepchildren of Poland fighting for their fatherland stirred the heart of Ostrovsky, and he subsequently wrote, This spectacle could not fail to make your heart ache. Our conscience bade us to attend to the betterment of this most downtrodden part of our population at the earliest possible moment. It is worthy of note that the wave of Polish-Jewish patriotism did not spread beyond Warsaw. In the provincial towns, the inhabitants of the ghetto were, as a rule, unwilling to serve in the army on the ground that the Jewish religion forbade the shedding of human blood. This indifference aroused the ire of the Polish population, which threatened to wreak vengeance upon the Jews suspecting them of pro-Russian sympathies. Ostrovsky's remark with reference to this situation deserves to be quoted. True, he said, the Jews of the provinces may possibly be guilty of indifference towards the revolutionary cause, but can you expect any other attitude from those we oppress? It may be added that soon afterwards, the question of military service as affecting the Jews was solved by the Diet. By the law of May 30, 1831, the Jews were released from conscription on the payment of a tax which was four times as large as the one paid by them in the former years.
when the aristocratic revolution, having failed to obtain the support of the disinherited masses, had met with disaster, the revolutionary leaders, who saved themselves by fleeing abroad, indulged in remorseful reflections. The Polish historian Lelevel, who lived in Paris as a refugee, issued in 1832 a manifesto to the Israelitish nation, calling upon the Jews to forget the insults inflicted upon them by present-day Poland for the sake of the sweet reminiscence of the Polish Republic in days gone by and of the hopes inspired by a free Poland in days to come. He compares the flourishing condition of the Jews in the ancient Polish Commonwealth with their present status on the same territory under the yoke of the Viennese pharaohs or in the land dominated by the northern Nebuchadnezzar, where the terror of conscription reigns supreme, where little children, wrenched from the embraces of their mothers, are hurled into the ranks of a debased soldiery, doomed to become traitors to their religion and nation. Similar utterances could be heard a little later in the mystic circle of Tobiansky and Mitzkevich in Paris, in which the historic destiny of the two martyr nations, the Poles and the Jews, and their universal messianic calling were favorite topics of discussion. But alongside of these flights of imprisoned thought, one could frequently catch in the very same circle the sounds of the old anti-Semitic slogans. The Parisian organ of the Polish refugees, Nova Polska, New Poland, occasionally indulged in anti-Semitic sallies, calling forth a passionate rebuttal from Hornish, an exiled journalist who reminded his fellow journalists that it was mean to hunt down people who were the slaves of slaves. Two other Polish-Jewish revolutionaries, Lubliner and Hollanderski, shared all the miseries of the refugees and, while in exile, indulged in reflections concerning the destiny of their brethren at home. In pacified Poland, which, deprived of her former autonomous constitution, was now ruled by the iron hand of the Russian viceroy Paskevich, the Jews at first experienced no palpable changes. Their civil status was regulated as heretofore by former Polish legislation, not by that of the empire. It was only in 1843 that the Polish Jews were in one respect equalized with their Russian brethren. Instead of the old recruiting tax, they were now forced to discharge military service in person. However, the imperial ukase extending the operation of the conscription statute of 1827 to the Jews of the kingdom contained several alleviations. Above all, its most cruel provision the conscription of juveniles or cantonists was set aside. The age of conscription was fixed at 20 to 25, while boys between the age of 12 and 18 were to be drafted only when the parents themselves wished to offer them as substitute for their elder sons who were of military age. Nevertheless, 
to the Polish Jews who had never known of conscription, military service lasting a quarter of a century to be discharged in a strange Russian environment seemed a terrible sacrifice. The Congregational Board of Warsaw, having learned of the UK's, sent a deputation to St. Petersburg with a petition to grant the Jews of the kingdom equal rights with the Christians, referring to the law of 1817, which distinctly stated that the Jews were to be released from personal military service so long as they were denied equal civil rights. The petition, of course, proved of no avail. The very term equal rights was still missing in the Russian vocabulary. Only in points of disabilities were the Jews of Poland gradually placed on an equal footing with their Russian brethren. In 1845, the Russian law imposing a tax on the traditional Jewish attire was extended in its operation to the Polish Jews, descending with a force of real calamity upon the Hasidic masses of Poland. Fortunately for the Jews of Poland, the other experiments in which St. Petersburg was reveling during that period left them unscathed. The crisis connected with the problems of Jewish autonomy and the Jewish school, which threatened to disrupt Russian Jewry in the 40s, had been passed by the Jews of Poland some 20 years earlier. Moreover, the Polish Jews had the advantage over their Russian brethren in that the abrogated Kahal had, after all, been replaced by another communal organization, however curtailed it was, and that the secular school was not forced upon them in the same brutal manner in which the Russian crown schools had been imposed upon the Jews of the empire. Taken as a whole, the lot of the Polish Jews, sad though it was, might yet be pronounced enviable when compared with the condition of their brethren in the Pale of Settlement, where the rightlessness of the Jews during that period bordered frequently on martyrdom. End of section 8